Um, let's put that graphic up about the judges' cycle. And I am not going to show this every week. Showed it for a few weeks starting out and then took a few weeks off. But I think you can just see this, um, this kind of a visual depiction of what's happening in judges over and over uh, on repeat. And uh, again, just Israel drifts away from God. Uh, one of the phrases that's used in the book of Judges is Israel forgets God, uh, or they remember him not. They begin to worship idols. They begin to enter into a life of disobedience. Then a, an oppressing nation or uh, other group will come in and will steal and rob and commit acts of violence against them, make life very hard on Israel, so hard that they kind of wake up, they come back to the Lord, put air quotes around, come back to the Lord. It's, it's not clear exactly how sincere sometimes these returns are. But they cry out to God, they pray to God, God hears their prayer, God raises up a deliverer, um, a savior, if you will, and puts things right, and, and Israel is safe once again. And this just happens over and over and over. We talked about as you go through the book of Judges, and I think you'll, you're probably already beginning to see this, certainly will with uh, Jephthah, the judge we'll talk about tonight, and then again later, and then Samson, that uh, the cycle seems to get progressively worse. By that, uh, mainly I mean the, the disobedience and the idolatry get worse. And the judges that are raised up become increasingly flawed judges, all right, or increasingly flawed rescuers. And Jephthah, I wanted very much to make Jephthah a one-night guy, like we're just going to do this in one night. And the more I worked on it this week and thought about it this week, the more I thought, I just, there's, there's just too much. I wish, I wish I could tell you it's really great stuff, that, but some of it's kind of hard stuff, some of it's kind of difficult stuff. Like most of Judges, some of it's kind of weird stuff, and I didn't want to race through it. So we'll, we'll just kind of go a little slower with, with part one tonight, and then um, we might have a week or two off doing, talking about some of the campaigns that have gone on this year, and then we'll pick back up with part two on Jephthah. Um, so here we go, Judges chapter 10. We get this intro to this bottom uh, of the pit part of the cycle where Israel is, is really hurting, and we get that introduction here. So Judges 10, starting in verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the, the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. A lot of gods. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan over to the west side to fight against Judah, 
Benjamin, Benjamin and the house of Ephraim. And Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. So as we work through these stories and this cycles that just keeps repeating through, uh, I think we naturally kind of find ourselves asking, when will Israel learn? When will they repent and just fully repent or truly just really come back to the Lord? I mean, they worship these foreign gods. They end up in big trouble. Then they turn back to God who saves them, and then they go right back into a cycle of idolatry. Why do they do that? Well, I mean, they look around, and there are a lot of different nations around them, and they see a lot of things that they wish were true of them. I mean, just some of them are very visible, very, like, obvious. There are these prosperous cities, walled cities, fortified cities, growing cities, and they want that. They see cultures, uh, music and dance and richness and culture. They want that. They see vibrant economies around them. They want that. They see um, technologies uh, around them. Technologies of war, technologies of harvesting, tech, they, and they want that. Uh, they see things that are shinier, brighter, better in these neighboring countries, and they want that. And so maybe there is something to these foreign gods. Maybe these cultures are tapping into some... some vein of power that Israel is not tapping into, and they certainly don't want to miss out on that. And so Israel wants what the other nations have. Uh, They are willing to do what it takes, to try anything, to, you could essentially say, worship anything, pursue anything that might get them in on what it looks like the neighbors have. And they don't seem to learn, do they? Maybe Israel thinks we just have not chosen the right gods at this point. Maybe it's the next god or the next set of gods who will deliver what we are looking for. Perhaps we are not doing the worship. I mean, we're new to the worship of the Baals and the Asherahs and the... (laughs) Chermoth, and maybe maybe we're just we're new to this, so we don't we aren't worshiping correctly. Maybe we just need to master the the cultic practices of this god or this other god. Uh, maybe we're just not giving those gods enough. Maybe we need to up our sacrifices, up our contributions, and then we'll kind of cross the thre- threshold into blessing. Uh, maybe we just you know need to go all in with these gods. And so they are regularly worshiping foreign gods. Now, I heard for a long time growing up that what made Israel truly unique was their monotheism. Like all these other countries are, are worship all these different pagan gods, and Israel is monotheistic. And 
I would say probably not a a conclusion you're going to reach going through the book of Judges that Israel is monotheistic. They don't look very monotheistic. And I get what we mean. They have a God. They're just not faithful to the God. They they do worship a lot of different gods, at least at this phase and during this phase in their history. Hard to argue with that. Interestingly enough, Israel is writing this history for us. They are recording some of their darkest moments for us. So Judges chapter 10 shows us they have not learned. Uh, They continue to abandon God. They continue to suffer because of that. Uh, They continue to repeat the cycle, then calling out to God for deliverance, and then going and experiencing victory and triumph and joy, and then reverting right back into their old patterns and suffering all over again. And so we find, I think just from that reading tonight, if you've been tracking with us during this series, and we're starting in chapter 10 tonight, so we've been going a while here, you find that um, since the beginning of the book of Judges, they have actually expanded, right? Expanded the set of gods that they worship. They started with a few. Now we have this very extensive list. They worship these gods and these gods and some of these gods and these gods. And they're worshiping the gods, interesting enough, of countries that they were in conflict with. I find that unusual as well. And so they repeat the cycle of obedience, uh, disobedience over and over. They don't seem to learn. They don't, certainly don't seem to be making progress spiritually or growing spiritually. We have that phrase, God is angry. That is a phrase that reveals to us God loves his people. It's not just, eh, no big deal. You're betraying me again. Where there is true relationship, where there is true love, there's going to be brokenness and hurt when there is betrayal. And God um, feels betrayed by these rebellions. And now they cry out to God once again. Verse 11. The Lord replied, interesting reply here, a little unexpected, I think. The Lord replies as they cry out to him once again, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods that you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Again, that's not the response that we would expect from God. That's not the response that we have become used to from God. I mean, has he finally reached his breaking point? Has his vast treasure of mercy and grace been expended on these people who have betrayed him over and over? Has his mercy reached an end? I will no longer save you. Go pray to these gods or these gods or these gods. I mean, after all, you have been praying to them. Go to them. See if they'll save you. So here's the deal. 
it looks like Israel is repenting. We've seen this story over and over, okay? They are saying the right words. They are doing, let's throw those gods away, okay? clear out those shrines and toss those, those idols in the wastebasket. It looks like they are repenting. They say in verse 10, they confess, we have sinned against you, God. All right. But you've got to ask at this point. I don't think I'm being cynical here. I think you've just got to ask, are they really repenting? It looks like it, but really, are, are, are they, is that how we would define repentance? Is that what de- repentance looks like? And that seems to be what, that seems to be, by the way, that, that seems to be what God is doing. He seems to be asking that question like, uh, we seem to have been here before multiple times. Why don't you guys just start crying out to your other gods? So back to chapter 10, verses 15 and 16. But the Israelites said to the Lord, they're, they're insisting here. No, 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 we're, this is for real. We promise. We're legitimately repenting this time. We have sinned. Do to us whatever you think best. But please rescue us now. And so they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. God finally feels pulled to step in, to intervene, and to save his people. So again, all of the, if you were just reading this text in isolation, certainly if you're going to be charitable with them, it really looks like they're repenting. I mean, they're acknowledging sin, and they're saying they're sorry. They're begging for help. They're inviting God to do whatever he needs to do to them to, to sort of punish them, to sort of... Uh, they, they understand they have it coming, I guess. And so God is touched by their situation as he has been. He will intervene, but, he still has, but, but we still have to ask, is, is, this, is this legitimate repentance? Are they really turning around and coming back to God? I mean, seen the song and dance so many times, just in the book of Judges. And they keep saying the right things they have before, they are now. They keep doing the right things they have before, they are now. And they keep throwing those old gods out. And they seem to keep coming back to God and worshiping again God. But are they really repenting? Um, let me grab a Bible here. I want, if you have your Bible, go to, we'll go to Jeremiah chapter 2, chapter 3. Really about chapter 2 through chapter 5. Um, there is an image. And honestly, this is not just the book of Jeremiah. But, but uh, over and over in the Old Testament... God uses a particular image, word picture, metaphor to sort of capture what it is that's going on. And it is a strong one. Um, A situation like this requires pretty strong imagery, so we have that here. And it is the image of the unfaithful spouse, okay? that God is sort of a husband metaphorically. Israel is his, is his beautiful bride metaphorically. And what seems to be happening is that Israel, some other guy catches her eye. And she leaves home. And she hooks up with this guy. Maybe a one-night stand with the Ammonites. It may be a longer-term relationship with different Canaanites and Philistine peoples. But that seems to be what's going on. This becomes uh, an image that God uses 
to help Israel through his prophet Jeremiah here to help Israel understand what's going on, how this hurts him. And so chapter 3, we'll just read a, a few verses and then I'll go to another passage as well. So, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and, and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? Now, Israel, but you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now come back home? Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place, again, graphic language, this is probably beyond PG-13, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You've defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. So we've got this cycle. We'll go to chapter 2 now. But we've got this cycle where this imagery, and this is uh, several of the prophets use this, but Israel leaves home, leaves her husband who loves her so much, leaves God, pursues a variety of other lovers. And then she ends up beat up, bruised. Her dress is torn. She's filthy. She's homeless. She's poor. She's destitute. She has nowhere else to turn. And this unfaithful wife comes back home. And this husband continually receives her. And God just says, hey, we need to have a conversation here. And so you'll hear something that sounds a lot like we read in chapter 10. Uh, we'll pick it up here in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, verses 29 to 27. This is not the right passage. Let me try. Chapter 3. Wish I could find this. I'll take a second here. Well, you've, yeah. Anyway, you've got all, all sorts of things here. But he basically tells her what he tells Israel in Judges chapter 7, which is, why don't you go and go back to these lovers, go back to these other gods, uh, you ran to them to start with. Where are they? Why aren't they helping you out? Um, and so he's just ga he's getting her attention. Man, I wish I could find that passage. I wrote down the wrong reference. Verse 5, maybe? Yeah, no, that's not it. Yeah, it's fine. Anyway, just common refrain, and the image used in Jeremiah and other prophets is this image of sexual immorality, of adultery, of prostitution, and obviously strong language to try to get Israel's attention, to let them feel what it is they're doing to the Lord. So basically, they're desperate. 
Israel has nowhere else to go. She is homeless. She is beaten and broken. She is poor. And that seems to be when she comes back to God and asks for yet another bailout. And based on their history, one might walk away and think, it really looks like Israel is looking for something from God, but they're not really seeking God. They're wanting what this husband provides, but they don't love their husband. Okay. And so before we move on, I, I think this is an invitation for us to kind of, you know, deal with our own stuff. Uh, we struggle with idolatry. We struggle with it. There are so many shiny things in the world vying for our attention that seem like they might add something to us, that they might give more meaning to our lives, more purpose to our lives, more stability to our lives, help us get ahead. And so we can find ourselves drifting away from God and toward these, these idols, these other pursuits. And we just want to always come to the text, not just to kind of point our fingers at Israel or Jephthah or whoever else, but, but to let the Spirit speak to us through their stories. And so the cycle repeats, since any idol we have cannot truly save us. Everybody has to live for something. But the Lord shoots straight, and he tells us that if the thing we are living for is not him, it cannot save us. Uh, author and intellectual David Foster Wallace, I've read some of his stuff and enjoyed some of his books, a little different, but makes you think. Um, top of his profession, award-winning author, uh, best-selling novelist, but he committed suicide back in 2008. Uh, but he said some very profound things, and, and in a commencement address, I just wanted to read some of what he said, which I think is very insightful. He said, here is something else that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches, talking to these graduates, in, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, he says, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out, and so on. 
So where do you go for that extra purpose? Where do you go for the extra meaning? Where do you go for the the extra happiness? That's where you're going to start to encounter your idols. Okay, And as we look at Israel's journey, I do think we need to be humble. We need to be available for the Spirit of God to speak into our lives and reveal to us, however however painful it may be, what our idols are. This time around in Judges, the Lord doesn't just let them, air quotes, repent. He doesn't just say, okay, Savior. He, he, he makes them stew a little bit. He asks them some tough questions. And he pushes back. And why does he do, do this? Well, um, he can, I think, see through this veil of repentance. He's gotten a lot of chances to see how hollow these turning back to God moments have been in Israel's history. They seem at face value, and even when you dig a little bit, they seem to be playing games with God, okay? And so he sees fault lines in their repentance. Maybe they don't even see it. Maybe they think, no, we're really, it's for real this time. But he sees this, and for their own sake, he hopes that they will at some point come to recognize those fault lines as well. That lack of sincerity, that lack of depth as well. And so they have the right words, they have the right worship, they're doing the right things here, but, they're, but over time, things don't seem to match up with this moment of repentance. Their hearts don't seem to correspond with this. And so there is a form of repentance that isn't really biblical repentance. And we've seen it on display, full, full display here in Judges. Repentance is really a full surrender. Okay? It is an abandoning of the ship, of, of me, uh, and, and saying, I need help. I cannot save myself. I need a total reset with you as Lord and Savior. They seem more interested in the Savior part, come save us, than they are in the Lord part, right? And so if I'm still in control, then is it really repentance? If I'm still in control, if I'm just kind of looking for a little reboot, a little fresh energy, fresh wind in my sails, is it really repentance? And so C.S. Lewis does a really good job of talking us through kind of what real repentance looks like. He says this. He says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing that you have been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor, that is the only way out of our hole. This process of surrender, this movement, full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. And so I think that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a raising of the white flag, a laying down of arms, a confession. We have not only messed up, we have been living in rebellion to you And so however sincere this moment out of many in the book of Judges appears, 
Um, and you may judge whether or not they really mean it this time. God does choose to honor his covenant, to treat them with mercy, to deliver them. And so this time, as we've seen in the story and the cycle, God will raise up a rescuer, raise up a deliverer, a hero, and this time it is a fellow named Jephthah. Starting in chapter 11, Jephthah the Gileadite, he was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers, you might parenthetically think pirates, scoundrels, Civil War era carpetbaggers, a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. So this is our introduction to this iteration of the rescuer. And this fellow's name is Jephthah, and God is going to use him to free the people. His story, like the story that we talked about with Gideon, it is complicated, and it is complicated even before he enters the world because he is the product of an illicit relationship between his father, a leader, a respected member of the community, Gilead, and a hooker, prostitute. And he's going to be raised in this household where there are these other brothers, and they are legitimate children. Their moms, or mom, don't know, probably multiple moms here, are legally married to the father, to Gilead. And so they are growing up together in this household. And when, and at some point, I would assume that Gilead is very old at this point, um, the father, they kick him out of the house. Um, you know, you see this sometimes, it's unfortunate. When there is a death in the family, you see, to put it politely, questions about the estate arise. There is sometimes jockeying for the money, for the stuff. And they want to secure their stuff. They want to make sure they get a bigger cut and that Jephthah is cut out because his father was never married. Their, their father was never married to Jephthah's mother. So you have no part in the inheritance. They actually are pretty explicit about that. The money is all ours. The stuff is all, the property is ours, okay? They're very clear about that. You're not part of the family. And then he, and how often do people do this? He begins to kind of become that which they have declared about him. He, he becomes an outsider, living in this remote area of Tob and becoming basically kind of a warlord and attracting this group of men who are not um, necessarily men of integrity, men of character, brigands uh, looking to use power to, to take um, 
So these sons of Gilead, they have no love for the half-brother. What they want from Jephthah is that he keep his distance. What they want from Jephthah is that he make no attempt to get what's theirs. It's their money, and these are their positions of leadership in the community of Israel. They are Gilead's true sons. Ah, but circumstances change. Change pretty radically. And it turns out they need him. (laughs) They need little brother to come back into the fold. So we get back into the text in verse 4. Sometime later, seven years, ten years, fifteen years, sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Top. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Oh, this had to be a, this had to be a sweet moment <laughs> for Jephthah. Hmm, okay. Been a long time since you guys wrote. Been a long time since we've been in contact, and you guys need something. You need me to lead military forces into battle to protect you. Is that it? So verse 7, he says to them, uh, wait a second, didn't you hate me? Verse 7. Aren't you the guys who drove me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, well, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. They just ignore those questions. So come with us. Fight the Ammonites. You will be head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me, will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them And he repeated all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. And so they hate him. They despise him. They fear Jephthah until they get desperate, until they have nowhere else to turn. And when they need Jephthah's services, when they need his deliverance, they come back and they start sweet-talking and they start making promises. The Ammonites are making war on Israel. They all might die. And so Jephthah becomes the only viable option, the only thing they can think of to find deliverance. Can you help us, brother? Can you fight? Can you lead us for old times' sake? (laughs) Uh, and Jephthah, I mean, understandably, he's not buying it, right? I mean, at least it's, he's not just going, okay, yeah, sure. He's going to push back on this. Uh, you guys, you remember that you did this to me, and you did that to me, and you kicked me out of the house, and, and you really want me to be your leader. You haven't been treating me all that well these past few years. Haven't been getting invitations to the holiday parties back at 
our father Gilead's house. And now, just like that, you're ready to elect me prime minister, (laughs) right? Uh, With all due respect, I'm not sure I'm buying it, Jephthah seems to be saying. And so essentially, he gets this in writing. I mean, he, he makes sure that this is ironclad, this deal. If I lead you into battle, I will be the leader of Gilead. And they must make a public oath to that effect. Okay, so yeah, I did really want to cover all of Jephthah's story, and we're not going to do that. I kind of ended up a couple of days back kind of giving up on that idea. I'm not totally done yet. There's a lot left to cover. So we'll kind of hit the pause button on Jephthah's story right here. But I do want to process a little bit of that, this because I, I suspect some of you may have been hearing this as I'm just telling this guy's story up to this point, that this story of Jephthah, of this, of this man and his, his family, that this echoes the broader story of Israel and God, right? Um, so think about that. Jephthah is rejected by his family. His people turn their backs on him, separate themselves from him, They don't need him. They don't want him. They are just fine, thank you very much, on their own. And then they get in a situation where they're in big trouble, big trouble. And they don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. And so the Gileadites cry out to Jephthah. They make promises. They beg They really want his help. God and Israel. It's the same story, right? It's the same story. The people rejected him, turned their backs on him, separated from him, began to pursue other gods, decided they didn't need him, decided they didn't want him. They are just fine, Israel, on their own. And then the big bad Ammonites show up. And start attacking them. And they realize we are in big trouble. Big trouble. They had no idea where else to turn. So they cry out to God. They're going to say the right things. They're going to make bold promises. Make beautiful speeches. Uh, They really, really want God's help. And so the story of Jephthah and his brothers is a microcosm of the bigger story of God and His people. And it becomes our story. Will we surrender? Will we lay down arms and turn back to God for more than help? for more than relief, for more than a deliverance today? Will we make the Lord more than our Savior? Will we make Him our Lord? That's the question. Will we find identity in Him? Will we find meaning in the relationship that we enjoy with our God? Will we find our hope is 
not only in what we can get from him, but is actually our hope is in his heart. Our hope is in who he is. I think that's the story. Let's bow our heads and we'll finish here. Pick up next time. Lord, some of these chapters from the history of your people are dark chapters indeed. Sometimes we, we find ourselves hanging on the words, looking for a happy ending. And what we find is just a big mess. And Lord, we're reminded that your choice to make a covenant with people like Israel, with people like us, was a choice that you knew going in was going to cause some hurt to you. That this would not be an equal relationship, that you would be unequally yoked to us. You knew going in that your people would not always be faithful, that their words would not always be genuine or sincere, that their turning back to you would not always be about who you are, but would often just be a grab for some sort of temporary deliverance. Father, tonight we surrender. We lay down our arms. We confess you to be Lord. We don't simply want an answer to our unemployment situation, a cure for our cancer diagnosis. We don't simply want a little relief from our depression, a little help with the stress we have from having to deal with so many responsibilities in life. We don't just want what you can provide. We want you. We want you to be our God. We want to be your people. We know that we cannot win that with flattery, with big promises. We cannot win that with making a few short-term changes. We need you in your totality. We need you to be sovereign over our lives, over our work, over our play, over our relationships, over our ministries. And so we do declare you to be more than our Savior. We declare you to be our Lord and our Savior. And we turn to you. And God, it is so good to see the depths of your grace. The lavishness of your mercy as you continue to allow unfaithful Israel to come back home. What an amazing God you are. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.